Let's open in our Bibles tonight to the book of Luke chapter number 6. Luke chapter number 6 tonight. And I'd like to be in reading in verse number 39. Let me say what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord. It's exactly where I want to be tonight. Somebody say amen to that. I'm glad to be here and I trust you are too. Luke chapter number 6. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 39. The Lord Jesus speaking, the Bible says, and He spake a parable unto them. And this is what He said. He said, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray together. Father, I love you tonight. I thank you for loving me. Lord, I pray that you'd take your holy inspired word and that you would use it effectively and particularly in our hearts and minds. Lord, we're preaching tonight upon the power of your word. And uh, what greater uh, power could be manifest than to see your word work effectually in our lives even this very evening. So I pray that that would be accomplished. And I pray, Lord, that you would deal distinctly with our lives, what's going on in them, how they need to be tailored and adjusted and corrected to be in line with your word. And may we leave here in a complete state of obedience. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have found myself and, and other preachers very often, uh, when they preach on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, often uh, plucking out of context what the Lord Jesus has said. Uh, there's many times that this does great uh, damage to the Scripture. Uh, I would say this, that if you and I don't understand the Word of God in context, we don't really understand it at all. If God just wanted to give us a collection of potpourri sayings, uh, merely a, a uh, you know, a proverb a day calendar and nothing more, then He could have done that. He could have just given us a collection of, uh, of sayings and of wisdom. Of course, He did in many ways do that in the book of Proverbs, although even the book of Proverbs has distinct context to it. But the Word of God is presented to us with the context that surrounds the passage that we so often are reading and focusing upon. And uh, when I began to study this passage of Scripture, I'll go ahead and tell you that it was the very end of this chapter that drew my attention the most. This is very familiar 
uh, passage about the man that builds his house upon the rock uh, compared and contrasted to, man, to the man that builds his house without a foundation. He builds it merely upon the earth. Or as you and I probably learned in a little song in Sunday school, the one that builds on the rock and, and the one that builds upon the sand. But when you study that passage of Scripture and begin to just inch back a few verses and a few verses and a few verses, you find that it is actually part of a larger context that deals with uh, the Word of God. In fact, I'm going to use a word. It's not found in our text, but the idea is encapsulated. And, uh, and it's found elsewhere in Scripture. And it's the idea of illumination. Now, when we use the word illumination, or when I use it tonight, I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that. I don't mean that God is revealing something that He has not revealed before. That would be what we would call revelation. Uh, the entirety of the Word of God. I know we think when we use the term revelation, we think of the final book in the Word of God. That's appropriate. It's, it's denoted as the revelation of Jesus Christ. But every time that God spoke to man, He spoke in revelation. He was revealing things that could not have been known otherwise. But when we use the term illumination, the way we normally use it in society is the idea of, of shedding light upon something. You could probably liken it to the idea of turning a light switch on. Uh, if you were to walk into this room in the pitch dark and, and turn the light on, everything that was here was here before you ever turned the light on. You didn't create anything by turning the light on. You didn't put anything new into the environment by turning the light on other than the light itself. But rather what you did is you shined a light. You exposed some things and made them perceptible to your eyes. I think that's really what the Lord Jesus is talking about here in a spiritual sense. And it is first hinted at in verse 39, the first verse that we read, when he says, can the blind lead the blind? The person is not blind. It means obviously that they are a seeing individual. What that means is light can penetrate into the eye and can be perceived and received by the ocular nerve and transmitted to the brain. And uh, the light is able to gain an entrance into the mind and illuminate the world around them. And so when I use the term illumination, I don't mean God saying things He ain't never said before. But what I do mean is you and I understanding, perceiving, absorbing, and receiving the truth that God has already disclosed in His Word. And that really, it seems to me, is what the Lord Jesus is talking about. I think it is emphasized in the latter portion of this chapter, but really the entirety of the passage that we read tonight, every bit of it deals with the idea of illumination. I want to read a couple of verses to you out of the book of Psalms, then we'll return to our text. Uh, you've probably heard these and read these before, uh, but it really encapsulates what this idea of illumination is. In Psalms 119, 130, the psalmist, of course, all of Psalms 119 is about the Word of God and it's about the Word of the Lord and the Lord of the Word. And uh, But he says this in verse 130, the entrance of thy words, speaking to God, the entrance of thy words, so God's words, the entrance of thy words giveth light. And he describes to us what he means by that. He says, it giveth understanding unto the simple. Can I say we live in a day of mass disinformation? We do. I don't care where you fall on the political realm. I mean, don't nobody believe we're being told the truth anymore. And I think it's probably true that there is spin and there is angle on much everything that we are exposed to today. How can we get understanding about ourselves, about God, about the world around us, and about the spiritual principles whereby this 
world and existence is, is governed and operated. Well, I can tell you exactly where we can find that. We can find that in the Word of God. The Word of God will illuminate our minds, our heart, and our eyes, spiritually speaking, to what is the truth of the world around us. In Psalms 36.9, the psalmist says this, For with thee is the fountain of life. Again, speaking to the Lord. With God, with thee is the fountain of life. Then he says this, In thy light shall we see light. In other words, if we want light to be shined uh, about a matter, the way we can find out, we can get light from His light. Well, what is His light? The psalmist has already told us that His Word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. I say all that merely to say that the Word of God uh, on multiple occasions connects the idea of the, the Word of the Lord, the revelation of God, the truth of God as is already given with the idea of shedding light upon things. And as such, I think if we go back to our text, what we find is not a, a rapid series, per se, of separate disconnected truths. And I think that is so often how it is presented to us because these uh, verses are preached uh, excluding the context. But I think rather... Each of these statements that the Lord makes about the blind leading the blind, about the disciple and his master, about the beam and the moat in a person's eyes, about a good tree bringing forth good fruit, about a man speaking out of the abundance of his heart. I think every bit of this culminating and, and sort of reaching a point of climax in the story about the two men that build houses, all of this is based upon the idea of what we do with the Word of God. Can I tell you something tonight? This book has not changed. It is the same as ever it has been. This book that has been the foundation for life-changing and transforming revivals, the conversions of people that folks thought could never be saved, could never be changed, nations being shaken, the church having power and influence and might, in society for the glory of the Lord Jesus, the chains of Satan being broken in people's lives, Every bit of that that the Word of God has done before, it can still do now. It's still there. I'm not talking revelation tonight. I'm, talk I'm not talking about God telling you something that ain't in His book. I'm saying what's in His book is enough tonight. But what we need is the illumination of the Word of God. How is it that the Word of God is illuminated to us? Well, I think when we look through this passage... We find some ideas, we find some truths that speak to that very issue. And every bit of this begins in verse number 39. If you read the entirety of this chapter, uh, he has been talking about uh, false prophets earlier on in the chapter. He's been talking about how we treat other people and uh, the measure whereby we will be judged in, in our treatment of others. But really, verse 39 begins sort of a, a new thought or a new idea or a transition in the conversation to this idea of the illumination of the Word of God, of how we treat the Word of God. What you do with the Bible will dictate how your life goes more than any other single thing. I, listen, I'm not against education. I'm certainly not against politeness and charity and being good to people and kind to people. I'm not against developing skills and trades and things of that sort. I'm not against investing. I'm not against any of those things. Uh, I'm not against taking care of your health despite what your eyes may be telling you. I'm not against that. I'm a little bit against it for me. I'm not entirely against it for you. But, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, those things, however they may affect us, pale in comparison to how what we do with the Word of God affects us. 
What you do with this book, how you interact with God and His Word will determine more about your life than any other single thing. Or I would say this, than all other things combined. All other things cumulatively. What you do with the Bible will dictate what your life is. So this is of supreme importance to us. Because how you fix your heart to interact with the Word of God as it is preached to you, as you read it, as you study it, as it is taught to you, what you do with that is going to determine who you are and what your life is. And I think that's why the Lord Jesus dwelt on it so heavily in His ministry. In verse number 39, notice carefully what the Bible says. He spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Now, can I go ahead and say to you that when you read that casually, those two statements seem somewhat disconnected. When I first read them, Brother Charlie, I I sort of had to think about why these two statements had anything to do with each other. And it dawned on me then, both of these statements are speaking about the idea of following following. The first is of a person leading someone on safe paths that doesn't have the wherewithal in of themselves to know where they should place their feet. And the second is about a person uh, that is following their master or their mentor, their Lord, someone that they seek to emulate. And so both of these deal with the idea of following. And I think what the Lord Jesus is pointing to here is the reason for illumination. Now, this seems like a obvious uh, truth. It seems like something, and I trust that you as a Bible believer, uh, probably all, you don't have to be told why you need to know the Word of God. You probably already know why you need to know the Word of God. But it is not a settled matter for many people, and even people claiming the name of Christ, that they need to learn and apply the truth of the Word of God. You might say, well, preacher, how could you say such a thing? Surely every Christian wants to know and learn and love and obey the Word of God. And I would say to you tonight very simply, if that's true, then how come there are so many that don't? Even I'm talking about amongst fundamental churches where we believe the Bible's the Word of God and we believe that means something. Amen? Uh, We don't believe that's just an abstract concept, but we believe it means we can hold God's Word in our hands and have confidence in it. Even amongst Bible believers, there are many that never give attention to the reading and studying the Word of God. And even when they read and study it, they somehow develop a a sterile academic relationship with the Word of God where they've learned to appreciate it as a literary, uh, you know, entity, but they don't really read it as though God's voice is speaking to them. I say until you learn to open your Bible and listen for God's voice to your life, you're not going to grow as a Christian. You're not going to develop. You wonder sometimes where I have in 10 years of pastoring, you see people, and I'm not speaking of anyone here tonight, but you see people that uh, will be in in their uh, golden years, their twilight years of life and exhibit spiritual immaturity. And you wonder to yourself, how could a person be saved for 20, 30, 40, 50 years? and not develop as a Christian. And there's a very simple answer to that because for all of that time, they've not, uh, they've never sat down and eaten the bread of life, the bread of the Word of God. They've never taken time to sit down and find out what God has to say about them. If you have a medical problem and you don't go to a doctor, chances are you're not just going to figure it out on your own. Uh, if uh, you have, sometimes even the doctor won't. Somebody say amen to that. Some of y'all I know better be saying amen to that. 
And uh, if you have a problem with your vehicle, unless you're a trained mechanic, you're probably not going to figure it out on your own. You're going to have to go to the one that knows something about it and listen to what they have to say and implement their instruction and their guidance if you want something to change. And that, I think, is the fundamental statement or truth that the Lord Jesus is conveying. Why is it important that we read the Word of God? Why is it important that we respond correctly? Well, number one, because of our blindness. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Now, I think sometimes we misunderstand what the Lord is saying here. I think sometimes we read it to mean that we are to stand as an example to other people. Now, let me say, I believe we ought to be an example to other people. But I don't think the Lord Jesus is saying, if you want to lead blind people, then you need to have your eyes open. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think rather, uh, we're not the one that's leading, we're the one that's following. And the Lord Jesus is saying, you know why you need my instruction? You know why you need my teaching? You know why you need my truth? Because you are blind and I am not, and I can lead you in ways that you otherwise could never know. In other words, our blindness, we are naturally blind. We are not born with uh, with infinite or uh, or infallible knowledge. And uh, the truth is, there's just some things you and I, we don't know by gut instinct. Uh, now, uh, can I tell you what gut instinct is? And I understand there are contexts and uh, scenarios in life where it's not altogether bad to have a gut instinct about something or this or that. But as a Bible believer, what do I believe gut instinct is? I believe gut instinct is leaning under your own understanding. How often in life do we navigate with gut instinct? It's lauded through the world's mind because the world views only uh, two types of force or guidance in a person's life, external or internal. That's not the truth for the uh, for the uh, child of God. For the lost person, they only either have external people telling them what to do or internal them uh, doing what they want to do. But we as believers, we have eternal guidance. We have the God of glory revealing to us what we ought to do. And so I understand why a lost secular world lauds this idea of gut instinct. But for you and I, that's not how our world is to operate. Uh, we're to find out what God says about a matter. And that should settle things. How far removed have we uh, have we become from the idea of the Word of God being sufficient to shape a person's worldview? Uh, so often in the world around us today, we feel, and I think this is because the exposure that social media and the Internet has brought, which I don't think are necessarily nascent evils. I don't think they're uh, intrinsically evil or wrong, but I do think they've exposed a lot of the wickedness of human nature. But because of that, everybody feels like they've got to have an opinion about everything. Everything. Uh, the one thing you don't want to be caught without. I mean, forget about your cell phone. Forget about your car keys. Forget about... You just don't want to be caught without an opinion. Can I tell you something? That's a dangerous world to live in. Because we then feel it incumbent upon us to adopt whatever opinions are most convenient and not search out the truth of what the Word of God says about things. In so much that you've got people walking around. I saw a news story uh, just the other day about a, a state uh, a football coach in, in Illinois. And uh, I didn't know they had a football team. Amen. No, I'm not going to. But but in Illinois, a, a football coach, there had been some kind of dust up over the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, which is a radical political Marxist movement. That's what it is. The sentiment that the lives of black people matter is true. We all agree on that, and we've always all agreed on that. But uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is a political, radical Marxist movement that believes in the destruction of the nuclear family. Uh, it's a dangerous ideology. 
And uh, you've got a lot of Christians parroting that, that sentiment and that slogan because it's a convenient opinion. Uh, well, there was some kind of dust up that, that had arisen over the Black Lives Matter thing. And th- this football coach uh, quit his job. He left his job. And the way he did, he, he wrote a note on his, on his uh, office door. He said, all lives matter to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He walked off and left. And, um, you know, to the world, that's a radical statement. It is. Not to everybody in the world. I understand that. And maybe not to as many people as as is projected to us. But to a large group of society, that is a radical, radical statement. And even as Bible believers, we have grown to a place, and I, I don't feel this way, I hope you don't feel this way, but you can take the temperature of society and see that the world does feel this way, that it is a radical thing to make a statement like, all lives matter to Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that is a purely, uh, a, a, a genuinely, sincerely bedrock biblical statement. If we don't believe that, we don't believe the Bible. I'm just merely saying that we have forfeited, we have surrendered biblical opinions and biblical worldview for convenient opinions because we feel it incumbent upon us to have an opinion about everything that happens and we're too lazy to search the Scriptures to find out what the Bible says about a matter. So here's the truth. We're not born inerrantly with this knowledge. Uh, we're blind. And we'll very easily make a misstep. And in your life and in my life, we're making decisions day in and day out. And we are not, we cannot just intuit our way through. I mean, we can try to and we'll make a mess of things. We'll wind up in the ditch. But guess what? There is truth. There is light. There is sight that can lead us and guide us. We need it because of our blindness. But then notice the second statement he makes. Now remember, these two statements are connected. He says, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Now again, he is evoking the idea of a mentor and a a follower relationship. And I don't know that the Lord Jesus is speaking of this strictly in terms of himself and his 12 disciples, but I think rather he's just evoking the dynamic of that relationship of someone that is seeking to learn and of someone that is admiring someone as a mentor and that mentor has taken upon themselves to lead that person and develop that person in whatever trade or whatever skill set it is that they are, are ministering to them in. And he gives a very basic fundamental statement, and that's this, that if you've got a, a person that's following their mentor, they don't know more than the mentor. They're not above the mentor. In fact, their whole goal is to be like the mentor, and they are following the mentor because they are not yet at that level. In other words, what he's saying is this, the reason a person needs a master, needs a mentor, is because they haven't got it all figured out and there's some things that need to be developed in them. I would say this, the reason for the illumination of the Word of God, the reason we need it is because of our blindness, but also, number two, because of our brokenness. Because not only do we not have it all figured out yet, but even if we had it figured out, we won't have figured out how to get it all figured out. That didn't make any sense, did it? We may have all of the knowledge that we need, but even if we had all the knowledge that we need, the wherewithal to implement that knowledge seems to escape us. How many of you know more Bible than you read? Can I raise my hand to that? I know more Bible than I live. That's sad, but I'm being transparent. I'm being honest. I could quote passages of Scripture to you, and you probably could to me, that Neither me nor you is a fitting example. We have the knowledge, but it's not merely enough to have the knowledge. The knowledge has to be implemented. You know why? Because we have a lot of brokenness in our life, sinfulness in our life, 
There is deficit as regards our spiritual maturity. In fact, we might say it this way, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I need to be. I know we all like to say, praise God, I ain't where I used to be. And I'm thankful for that. But can I just emphasize that I'm not where I need to be tonight? And that's why I need the truth of the Word of God. So I see the reason for illumination. But then notice the next uh, sort of parable, example, illustration that the Lord Jesus gives. In verses 41 and 42. He says, And why beholdest thou uh, the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Now, this is a passage of Scripture that is quoted a lot by people that don't want their lives or actions examined. It is. It's quoted a lot by people that are, that are, uh, that are, are uh, suing for a permissive way of living. And what they would love is for there to be motes in everybody's eyes. So nobody was ever having an opinion about what anyone else uh, was doing or how they were living except them who, of course, is permitted to have an opinion about how everybody else is having an opinion about them. So as soon as we get our brains untied from all that, suffice it to say that the purpose of the Lord Jesus saying this is not to say everybody's got motes in their eyes so everybody shut up and be quiet. That's not what He's saying. Rather, what the Lord Jesus is saying is that if you want to help somebody else, you have to first deal with the issues in your own life. Then after you have dealt with those things, you have the ability to minister to and be a help to them. It was never the uh, the desire of the Lord Jesus that we just merely be left with these problems in our life, but rather that they be dealt with in proper course. And I think here what he's talking about is the requirements for illumination. He's saying you're trying to fix other people's problems while ignoring your own problems. And it's a reminder to me that if the Word of God is going to be real and living to us, there are some attitudes we're going to have to employ and and adopt and embrace. There are some things we're going to have to do. The first is the examination of self. I underscored this in in my notes. Look at verse 41. He says, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Now, he did not say, Why are you trying to take the beam out of your brother's eye or the mote out of your brother's eye and not taking the mote out of your, or the beam out of your own eye. He does say that here in a moment. But that's not where he begins the illustration. He begins the illustration by saying, it's remarkable to me that you can see that tiny little mote in their eye, but somehow you cannot see the beam in your own eye. I think what he's saying here is this. I don't believe you can't see the problems that you have. I believe you're unwilling to see the problems that you have. Uh, It is amazing the amount of cognitive dissonance, the amount of hypocrisy, and the amount of willful blindness that the human mind and spirit uh, can employ. It is amazing. I mean, it strains the definition of the word irony, the ability that we as humans have to condemn things in others that are more greatly exhibited in our own life. Now, that's not by accident. Uh, And it's certainly not necessarily something that God desires of us. But I would say this, it is a product of the human condition. Uh, We do that as a matter of self-preservation. We do that so we don't have to deal with our own uh, flaws and failures. And so he says, listen, 
what you ought to do is first deal with the, the issue in your own life, then deal with the issue in another person's life. But he says before you ever even get to that, you have to be willing to acknowledge the problem in your own life. I would say this tonight. If we want the Word of God to be real and living in our lives, there has to first off be an examination of self. Before he ever says this is what you do, he says this is what you have to see and acknowledge and admit. Your life and my life has to be the first one placed under the magnifying glass of the Word of God if the Word of God is to be real and living. You know part of the reason it grows dead to us? Because in our heart and mind, it's never speaking to us. I have said this before, and and I have been guilty of saying this, and I won't say it's altogether wrong every time. It's a thought that occurs to me at times. I'm sure it's a thought that occurs to you at times. When you've sat in a, in a service, when you've heard a preacher preach, and, and there's been someone that has, has leapt to your mind, and you've thought about how much help they would have received, and you, you've said something like this, and I know you have, I've said it too, I'll probably say it again, sometimes it's appropriate to say, but we'll say, boy, I wish they had been here to hear what was preached. Now, again, I, I'm not saying it's altogether wrong to acknowledge that something might have been a help to them, but can I just remind you that the thrice holy omniscient God knew who would and would not be there in that particular instance. And the greater tragedy is not just that we sell short God's omniscience. The greater tragedy is that we often miss what God was seeking to do in our life by focusing rather on what that could have done in somebody else's life. If the Word of God's going to be living to you, the first thing you have to do is put yourself under the authority and jurisdiction of it. When it's preached, you have to say, Lord, what do you have to say to me? To me. We're not willing to examine ourselves. We're not willing to admit that we have flaws and failures in our life. Now, most of us will admit to that in a general sense. Yeah, I'm not perfect. And then we follow it up with, and nobody is. So what we're really saying is, I'm really no worse than anybody else is. (laughs) Instead, we need to be specific in our lives, and we need to be yielded to God in the examination of ourselves. So there has to be an examination of self. But again, his desire is not just that we all sit around with motes and beams in our eyes and and uh, strike this devil's bargain where I'll ignore your sin if you'll ignore my sin. That's a lot of what modern-day Christianity does. I'll ignore your sin if you'll ignore my sin, and we'll all just be happy in our hypocrisy. Rather, the Lord Jesus calls out the hypocrisy. And then he says this, Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. So there has to be two attitudes. The first is the examination of self. We have to be willing to admit when there's something wrong in our life, when there's sin in our life. Or even, it may not be sin, strictly speaking, but a deficiency in our life. Some area where we're not living up to the calling of Christ upon our life. We have to be willing to admit that. But you know, it's not enough just to admit it. We have to be willing, not only an examination of self, but a transformation of self. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, I can't change me, and, and, and only God can change me. That's true. You know how he does that? He does that through the Word of God. That's how he does that. And you know how he does it in your life and in mine? By us applying the Word of God in honesty and sincerity and taking the Word of God and implementing it in our life. So let's not get too high and and lofty and spiritual about this thing. Let's just go ahead and be real honest. We can see a transformation in ourselves, not under our own power, but under the power of God. But it must be under the permission of our own will and our own self. We have to let God change us. Very often, and this is a remarkable phenomenon, but it exists. Uh, I guess it goes along with this idea of permissiveness about your life. And I've known people that knew the problems in their life and had no desire, had no will, had no initiative to want to see those things change. 
I'll be honest, there's been times in my life that's been me. We have to be willing for God to change us. The will of God cannot be exercised in your life as long as your will trumps His will. Your will has to be surrendered to His will. We have to be willing to let Him change us, not only if we're ever going to change someone else, but even if ever we seek to see us made more into the image of Christ. So we see the requirements for illumination. Then he gives another example. I'm going to hasten. I'm not really going to preach these. I just want to give them to you. At verse 43, he says, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. There is an interesting inside-out, outside-in dynamic to the truth that the Lord Jesus communicates here. Now, again, it'd be easy to think that he's switched gears. Uh, He's been talking about the Word of God and how it affects our lives, but now he's talking about fruit and figs and brambles and thorns and grapes, and he's talking about a man's heart. Is he still talking about the illumination of the Word of God? I think he is. I think what he's talking about here, in fact, I know he is, is the results of illumination. What is God trying to do in your life and in my life? Well, first off, I see there is an external change that God seeks to make. Now, for all those that want to say, well, you know, God looks on the inward man. That's exactly true. But you know God knows about your outside too. He does. He doesn't just know about your heart. He knows about your your life as well. And, of course, we could say man looks on the outside, and that is true, and that is Uh, potent and important and powerful and meaningful. But beyond that, I think what the Lord Jesus is seeking to say is that when the Word of God is applied in our lives, it will not be compartmentalized either to the inside or the outside. He says there will be an external change. And He says it on several occasions. He uses the word fruit. Now what is fruit? Fruit is the manifestation of the life within the tree or within the plant. It is the, the, the production of that life. It is that which is born and gives testimony and witness that it is a living thing. You'll see dead trees with leaves on You'll see dying trees with leaves on them. You won't see dead trees with new fruit upon them. You won't see dying trees with new fruit upon them. It is a product of the life that is within. So he says there's going to be an external change. God does want to change your outside and my outside. I'm not talking about the aesthetics of our appearance, except in as much as... God may deal with them as regards our holiness and our separation and our modesty. And I believe those are things that God has an opinion about. He addresses and He he has a a thought on and feelings on and He discloses them in the Word of God. But I'm talking about the way our life is lived matters to God. God wants control. God gave His life for our life. And now we talk about that all the time as regards the great exchange of grace that our life was worthless and His life was worth everything and our life was death really and his death brought life to us but can i just remind you of a very simple truth tonight he wants what he paid for he died for your life your life should be surrendered unto him so there's an external change as part of the result of illumination but that external change is not merely an externality rather uh, it is the manifestation of an internal change that's what he says in verse 45 it says these things don't come from nowhere The things you say come from your heart. A good man speaks out of the good treasure of his heart. An evil man speaks out of the evil treasure of his heart. And then this this famous eternal, I mean it's all eternal truth, but this this, uh, very famous and very memorable phrase for the abundance of 
of the heart his mouth speaks. So the Word of God is is uh, producing in our lives not just an external change, but an internal change. And in fact, that external change is the product of an internal change that takes place. It is from our heart that these things manifest. So I see the results of illumination. And then finally, we come to really what sparked my interest initially. Uh, and it's that last parable, that last story and illustration that the Lord Jesus tells. I won't read its entirety. We'll read it as we move through it. Uh, but it's about the, the two men building upon earth and, or sand and building upon the foundation of a rock. But here's what I find interesting is how this passage begins. Look at verse 46 with me. The Lord says this, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We've not moved on from this idea of the Word of God, this theme that is found throughout this passage. He's still talking about the illumination of the Word of God. But here he's saying this, there are a group of people that profess to know me, but their lives say something mighty different. In other words, we could call this the rejection of illumination. Given light, but choose to walk in darkness. Now, the more expanded uh, illustration of this is found in, in Matthew's account. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, I won't take time to read it, but you've heard preachers preach on it. You've probably heard me preach on uh, the fact that there will be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, and, and the Lord Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They'll say we did great things in your name, mighty works. And they'll say, yeah, uh, but you were workers of iniquity. Your life was not transformed by whatever cursory knowledge you knew. You knew my name, but you didn't know me. You, you knew my identity, but you didn't know me. You knew uh, the uh, followers of me, but you never knew me. That's the greater context of what's being said here. And it's in that context that the Lord Jesus talks about these two men. It's the idea that there's a group of people out here that know the Word of God, but don't do the Word of God. The Apostle uh, James picked up on this later on. And of course, uh, uh, the, or not the Apostle James, but James, the half-brother of the Lord, uh, uh, wrote about it in the book of James. Uh, talked about being a, a doer of the Word versus being just a hearer only of the Word. And he says, you know, there's people out here that they, they, they uh, claim the name of Christ. They call themselves Bible believers or Christians or whatever that particular era and age would have identified Christianity as. And he says they say that, but their life does not speak it. They have rejected the light that God has given us. So what does it mean when we reject the truth of the Word of God? And rejecting the truth of the Word of God doesn't always look like shaking your fist at it. Rejecting the truth of the Word of God doesn't always mean burning a Bible. It doesn't always mean marching for some atheist cause. Talking about there are, are, are uh, people that would call themselves Baptists that sit in churches that are founded upon the truth of the Word of God, uh, but they are only hearers of the Word. They don't ever implement the truth of the Word of God. What does the Bible say about that? Well, the first thing I notice that it says, it is, that, is it is a foreign concept. I use this word, and I didn't put it in my notes, but I'll share it with you, disconsonant. You know what the word disconsonant means? It means what your eyes see and what your ears hear don't match up. You've been watching a movie and the and the dialogue got got off track, and it just messes with you. I don't know if you're like me, man. I can't handle it. I, it's the reason I could never watch any kung fu movies. You know, I, I just I can't do it. It bothers me to see their lips doing one thing, but my ears perceiving something else. That's what disconsonant means. It means out of order. It means not cohesive and not uh, coinciding. With one another. And that's what the Lord says about this idea of knowing the Word of God but not doing it. He says, You're saying one thing, but you're doing another. How absurd it is that we would say He's our Lord. 
How absurd it is that we would say He's our God. How absurd it is that we would say this is our book, but not obey it. It's a foreign concept. It's strange. It's, it's alien to us. It is disconsonant. And it is part of the reason, by the way, that the world uh, preys upon uh, Christianity. It's part of the reason the world gives no credence to Bible Christianity. Is uh, Can I just be frank? They, they hear it talked about a lot, but they don't see it a lot. And that's why they have the problems they do with, with, with Christianity. And I, listen, I'm not saying the world doesn't hate Christ. I know that it does. I'm not saying that there is not an, a, an inborn uh, malice towards the things of God in this world. I understand that. But you know, a lot of their criticism is duly founded. Because they hear it talked about a lot, but they don't see it a lot. The Lord says, you know, I have a problem with that too. <laughs> I have a problem with that too. So it's foreign. And then number two, it's foolish. I'm not going to expound deeply this, this passage of Scripture. Not that I could if I wanted. But I mean, I'm not going to spend much time on it. But what the Lord Jesus says here about these two individuals exposes a couple of important things. One, that it's foreign. Why call ye me Lord, Lord? Do not the things which I say. Number two, that it is foolish. Now, he speaks first of the man that builds a foundation upon a rock. And if we use that as an example of why we should listen to the Word of God, I think we find a warning as to why it's dangerous not to. He says in verse 47, Whosoever cometh me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Now, that's why it's a good idea to build your life upon the truth of the Word of God. But when we sort of reverse engineer that, what do we learn? Why is it important? Why is it foolish to be a hearer of the Word but not a doer? Number one, I would say this, because the changing seasons are he doesn't say, you know, if a flood arose, that'd be pretty bad. He says it's coming sooner or later. When the flood arose, this is what happened. Because sooner or later, whatever season you're at in life right now, one thing's for sure, it's changing. Uh, now, if East Tennesseans don't know that truth, I don't know who could learn it. Amen. Uh, you've heard this before, but sometimes we get all four seasons in a day. What a reminder it is to us that we live in an unpredictable world. Uh, you may feel as though you don't need the truth of the Word of God today, but you are one phone call, you are one tragedy, you are one trip to the mailbox, or, or, or one click of opening your email away from your life being in shambles. And I think that really is, is the second reason that he gives. Now, why did the flood happen? This wasn't flash flooding of dry, otherwise land. He says this, when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house. So evidently, wherever this house was built, it was built against or very near to a body of water that had a propensity to flood. And that's the second thing, you know, because the changing seasons, but also because the raging stream that this house was evidently close to. It seems apparent to me, uh, and this would be, of course, in keeping, that uh, most of the time if a person uh, built their house, uh, and this is the reason he is uh, not foolish for building it upon a rock, because he was building in a dangerous place in the first place. And I tell you, we live in a dangerous world. We live precarious lives. It's foolish to reject the illumination of the Word of God. You may think you don't need it today because the sky is clear and the sun is shining and it's dry out and there's not a cloud in sight. Oh, how quickly that can change. You may think that you're okay, and you may be. I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying life changes quickly. You never know what God may be doing. You know, And that's the, the final thing. I'll just say it and be done. It's foreign the rejection of the of, of illumination of the Word of God. It's foolish. And the reason is because it's fatal. The Bible says in verse 49, 
But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently. Same stream that took uh, that, that beat against the one man's house took the other man's house. You know what that tells me? That man's house did not have to fall. Sometimes we say that the things that we encounter in life are inevitable. And, and at times the event itself is inevitable, but how we weather it is not. Well, we can either weather it well through the power and wisdom of the Word of God or we can weather it poorly. The same stream that could not shake one man's house devastated another. And the Bible says that immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. There was nothing left over. There was nothing left over. You know that man that built his house upon the foundation of the rock? Even if it had took his house, guess what? He would have had something. The foundation would have still been there. Even if everything else went, the foundation could not be removed. It would have remained there. He would have still had something to build upon, even if everything had fallen apart. And I'll tell you something, if you if you ground your life upon the truth of the Word of God, I don't know what may happen. I'm not saying, I mean, a lot of people would look at Job's situation and say that his house fell. In fact, the Bible says explicitly, when the wind blew upon his children's house, that house fell. And a lot of people look at Job's circumstances and say, man, his house got destroyed. Yeah, but his foundation was still short. And God, from that foundation, built up another household, another life, twice as grand, twice as great, twice as blessed as what Job had first experienced. You better make sure that you're hearing and heeding, doing, obeying the Word of God. Because this book has no power to change you if you won't read it, and if you won't hear it, and if you won't consider it, and if you want to apply it and obey it in your life, that's when it is living. That's when it is vibrant. One day you will be judged by it, no matter what you do with it. That's the that's the me- measure whereby judgment will be meted out to us. But you can choose to live by it today and see your life the better for it. Let's bow together this evening. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open, and I just want you to obey the Lord tonight and obey His Word. God may have spoken to you about something specifically in your life. wouldn't surprise me if He did what we're here for tonight. We're here for God to speak to us. And He may have dealt with you about something distinct that He's been trying to deal with you about, that He's been speaking to you about, that maybe you've uh, withstood His His words and, and His wooing. Uh, you know, tonight would be a good night to yield to the Lord and give that matter over to Him. Or maybe just as a general sense in your life that you need to be obedient to the Lord. God has spoken to your heart. Whatever it is, would you yield to Him? Would you obey Him? Would you meet Him in this altar? And let him have his way in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.